many of our organizations started around neurodiversity to neuroinclusion to ultimately being able to drive workplaces that are inclusively designed. That means tools that are available for everyone and everyone has access to those tools. Welcome to the Ivy Academy Presents Leadership in Practice, your source for insights, research, and advice on emerging critical issues in business. For most of its evolution, the modern workplace has promoted a fairly narrow definition of what kind of employee should succeed. The system tends to sideline individuals with spiky profiles who may approach work and problem solving differently. And yet, thinking differently is often credited by our most successful business leaders as a key ingredient for success. In this episode, developed in partnership with the Neurodiversity Employment Research Project at Ivy Business School, we talk about designing workplaces that enable everyone to thrive, especially neurodistinct employees. Joining us are Jamel Mitchell, a leader at EY's Global Neurodiverse Center for Excellence Ecosystems, Patrick Poljan, board president at Arc of the Capital and former executive sponsor for neurodiversity at Dell, and Chloe Cameron, Ivy HBA 2012 and MBA 2021 and current PhD candidate in organizational behavior at Ivy Business School. Listen in as we explore how organizations can approach workplace design through a neurodiversity lens. This episode is hosted by Brian Benjamin, Executive Director of the Ivy Academy at Ivy Business School. Hello, and welcome to our Ivy Academy live stream. My name is Brian Benjamin, and I'm the Executive Director here at the Ivy Academy. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the third live stream we're delivering in partnership with the Neurodiversity Employment Research Project. In the previous two sessions, we looked at pioneering programs for neurodiversity hiring, and then explored how leaders can apply a neurodiversity lens to how they manage individuals on their teams. Today, we're excited to dig in to how organizations can design their workplaces to support neurodiversity and increase inclusion at scale. We're joined by three amazing panelists who all have extensive expertise and experience in this field. Our first panelist is Jamel Mitchell, a leader at EY's Global Neurodiverse Center for Excellence Ecosystems, where he oversees the strategy for increasing awareness, activation for securing talent, and identifying inclusive learning opportunities. He manages teams across the Americas and has worked to drive global adoption of inclusive sourcing, scaling, and sustaining efforts at EY, developing training procedures and implemented best practices within and outside the space of neurodiversity. His integral role in EY's journey to neuroinclusion often challenges organizations to consider cognitive diversity as a competitive advantage to further drive business solutions. Next up, Patrick Bolgen is the board president at Arc of the Capital, a nonprofit organization focused on empowering and advocating for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, where he works as a strategic advisor for neurodiversity employment. Patrick formerly served as the senior vice president of finance and supply chain operations at Dell Technologies for 12 years. During this time, he was the co-chair for Dell's True Ability Employee Resource Group, 
focused on supporting team members impacted by special needs and disabilities, with initiatives including employee engagement, hiring programs, and assistive technology. As part of this role, Patrick helped launch and served as the executive sponsor for neurodiversity at Dell. Our third panelist, Chloe Cameron, is a PhD candidate uh, in organizational behavior here at Ivy Business School. She's also an Ivy grad, having earned her uh, HBA from Ivy in 2012 and her MBA in 2021. She's an integral part of the Neurodiversity Employment Research Project here at Ivy, with her research focusing on the creation of organizational best practices for neurodiversity that will work to support a more innovative and productive teams and organizations. Chloe, uh, I'm coming to you first. Uh, so neurodiversity, um, a really big topic, uh, a really broad topic, a really important topic. Uh, what do we mean uh, when we talk about neurodiversity at work? Yeah, it's a it's a good a good opening question. So for those of you who haven't been following the nurse, neurodiversity conversation for the last 10 or 20 years, depending on how long it goes back. The neurodiversity paradigm was established in the late 1990s as a way to understand various neurodevelopmental conditions or differences as just that, differences rather than deficits. So the neurodiversity at work movement really started with autism and individuals on the autism spectrum because they face or tend to face disproportionate barriers due to social factors and differences. So more recently, organizational narratives have shifted to neurodiversity more broadly. Uh, so that includes ADHD and dyslexia, other differences, as well as autism. Uh, but still, most of the organizational designs that we see are rooted in addressing the tensions that were observed in organizations and individuals on the autism spectrum. So when we talk about neurodiversity at work now, uh, really what we're talking about is three different things in how we can progress. So one is about how to scale existing programs. The second one is on how to expand to other organizations and functions. And then the third one is to look at how we can address key barriers that are faced by different neuro-minority groups as well. Well, thank you for taking something that is really quite big, quite broad, quite complex, and, and sort of boiling it down to some important pieces. I, I got to pick up on the very first thing that you mentioned around um, differences, not deficits. And I think framing it in such a way as you did is is, is so critical and sets uh, the tone for, for a really productive conversation. Uh, Jamel, I'm coming to you next. Uh, do we have uh, any way to gauge organizational investment in neurodiversity and support programs. So we hear bits and pieces and, 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 we, and we read about it, but like, how do we sort of gauge what's really kind of going on? Well, Brian, one, thanks for the question. And I, I think it's a really important question that uh, really many business leaders or those who are in, in attendance today would be looking to really understand more around. I can tell you that there are lots of studies that continue to lean in on what is that investment from a business perspective? And one thing that comes to mind really quickly, Brian, and it's a recent uh, report that Gardner actually had put out, and that report has um, the top 10 predictions um, over the next three to five years. And those predictions really speak to where Fortune 500 companies will invest, where they will lean in on. And one of the predictions from Gartner for the next three to five years is that a minimum 
of 25% of the Fortune 500. So it's a minimum of 125 companies are going to heavily lean in on their neurodivergent hiring, right? And so I think that's just one example, one tool, one metric that we actually can go to that says that there is going to be an increase of the focus around neurodivergent hiring. That's a great starting point, but that only covers those that are being hired into organizations. There is also going to be uh, an additional level of investment with those who are already in these organizations. Because if we look at the global stats around um, neurodivergency as a whole, globally, we estimate that one in five individuals have a level of cognitive difference. And that cognitive difference would be anything such as autism spectrum condition or um, ADHD or ADD or dyslexia or dyspraxia. Um, this is, again, for those who identify with one condition, not also combining the fact that sometimes there's co-occurring conditions as well. But these, again, are just metrics that are being shared that lets uh, the business world, as well as those that are in academia, know that there is strong interest in this, this diverse amount of talent. And to, again, Chloe's point, the great way to kick off this discussion is that we're looking at difference and not focusing in on deficit. Great um, sort of leading indicator maybe not the right phrase perfectly but but sort of the intent and and sort of hopefully even more beyond intent a commitment to integrate um sort of neurodiversity into sort of the hiring practices and expectations you also talked about uh, great in terms of 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 talent that we're bringing into the organization but need to also pay attention to the talent that we have within organizations and then that kind of middle ground which is once we hire in how do we set someone up for success, individuals and teams through the integration process within organizations? I'd put you on the spot here, any organization that you see as sort of leading the way or or at least an organization that sort of made some visible strides in this space? I think that you teed that up so nicely for me. I would say EY. <laughs> we Ryan, didn't even talk about been, this beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I could have answered it better. I would I honestly would say that you know EY is one of the leaders within this field, and partially I feel that EY as a leader is because we continue to iterate off of existing processes. We continue to leverage the neurodivergent voice in all of our uh, customizations that we're making everywhere, inclusive of hiring, as well as what onboarding looks like and what general support may look like for anyone that's already within the organization. I think another component to that is while we understand that EY is one of the leaders in this field, um, other leaders are uh, Microsoft, as well as JP Morgan Chase and SAP and Dell and Travelers, uh, as well as even some of our competitors, such as you know PwC or Deloitte. Our program is very mature um, as we have been uh, really working along this journey for almost about a decade, where we have some individuals who have joined our firm back then who are 
now leading some of the different components to what we're doing, both from an internal perspective, but also from an external perspective. And this is, in my opinion, what makes EY unique is that we have a client base. And because we have a client base, we're helping our clients stand up similar types of programs and or look at their practices more holistically to ensure that we are being inclusive from everything from that entry point through retirement within organizations. And while it is a strong um, uh, goal that we have, and it is a long runway that we also have, it is something that we are challenging organizations to look at, again, more holistically. Well, that's great. I'm glad you um, <laughs> you jumped on the opportunity, uh, but also gave some, some shout outs and credit to, to other organizations. Um, and, and what I really appreciate is um, the work that's extending as, as a, a, you know, global leader in, in sort of, you know, your ability to reach organizations as clients, supporting those efforts as, as, as well. So, uh, so Patrick, let's get your voice into the conversation here. Um, you know, we've talked about sort of, you know, intense, we've talked about sort of journey and, and efforts that organizations are making and are looking to make. Uh, let, let's talk about some of the outcomes, um, you know, and what are some of the outcomes that you've seen as a result of, of uh, efforts that organizations are making to create more inclusive, neurodiverse environments where where individuals and themes are, are, are and teams are truly thriving. So, talk to us about outcomes. Sure, Brian. Thank you. Um, and maybe just to start, I could provide a little bit of context based on the introduction that you provided. You know, when I first of all got involved with this whole world, it was with my son being diagnosed with autism when he was about five years old, four years old, back in like 2008, 2009 timeframe. And that was just the time that I was uh, making the move to go to D Dell Technologies and uh, quickly became part of this employee resource group that you mentioned called Truability and quickly learned that there were a lot of folks in my shoes who had kids around that age uh, that were diagnosed and trying to figure out what resources were out there in terms of how to navigate schools and um, support and therapy and uh, ABA, like all these things that were novel and it really kind of changes your world and your community. And as that developed through time, uh, it turned into what happens next. And you realize there's sort of a cliff after the school-aged years of uh, the support and opportunity in many cases. And we started studying this and found, and, and I know it's a broader definition now, Chloe, with neurodiversity, but at the time, five, six years ago, you know, it was the statistics were that people with autism were 80 to 90% unemployed or underemployed, meaning they were capable of doing, you know, so much more uh, in, in what they wanted to do in their life and, and for their potential. And that's what got us interested to learn what other companies are doing. And we started um, attending some of these uh, workshops or uh, roundtables. And this is when we had the chance to learn from companies like EY. And it's when I met Jamel probably five, six years ago uh, to, to see what EY was doing and what Microsoft and SAP and others. And help, they helped us with a blueprint to to get moving at Dell, okay? And we started slow. We started with three uh, hires up in the Boston area. And five years later, we're 
uh, well over 100 hires in all sorts of different parts of the organization. Uh, and to, to, to your point, being able to see the outcomes and success of this has been fairly uh, remarkable. And I remember when I talked to Michael Dell about this the very first time, you know, he said, you know, what I love about it is that it's entrepreneurial. You know, think about Michael Dell, quite an entrepreneur, starting in his, you know, dorm room and now uh, having the company as now, but he saw it as an opportunity to leverage diversity and to bring in new ideas and new thought. And it was always about the business case and never about because it's, you know, a good thing to do. It was hey, this, yeah, it's a good thing to do, but this is going to give us better returns on our investment in, in the company and provide better for customers and have better solutions and ideas and so forth. So, you know, being able to bring in great talent, talent that's extremely loyal and committed to be in the organization, and it enabled also new ways in the organization to support everyone. So once you start hearing about uh, needs of the neurodiverse uh, population that says, hey, I could really do better if I had, I don't know, maybe a, a ball to sit on or the ability to walk around and, you know, between meetings or, you know, have this kind of environment that's going to let me be more successful. You know, it, it enabled, you know, everyone to have that opportunity to find ways where they could be more successful. Assisted technology, for sure, uh, was a place that you know, as, as we were rolling out assistive technology, it wasn't just for those that were neurodiverse, it was for, for everyone uh, that could that could use that. And now more and more people want to see the, the script, you know, the captions on the screens or uh, look at meetings in a, in a different way and how they can be more successful. So and, and our teams really appreciated bringing in the diversity. It built more community, frankly, across the teams. And so many times we'd have employees say, hey, this is great. Like, thank you for doing this or I have a neighbor, I have a niece, or I have an uncle, you know, whatever it might be, that they can now uh, talk to them about what Dell's doing and, and how this is working and, and being successful. And um, Jamel mentioned it, but the, the last one I bring up is just the opportunity for new conversations with customers and suppliers and stakeholders to talk about, hey, what is this? What are the myths around this? What are the how do you think about this from a business case perspective and, and why should we, how can you help us get started? Uh, and I think those are all, when I think about the outcomes, uh, you know, what, what comes out. Thank you. Um, it's actually quite um, expansive when you start to talk about the, you know, intended outcomes and to some extent almost unintended outcomes yeah. as it grows sort of exponentially. I really appreciate your comment um, around the impact beyond the organization. So, um, you know, family members, friends, you know, understanding, you know, sort of connections and 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 giving people strategies and 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 ideas. I, I'm going to pop to two questions here. Uh, what can organizations do to attract uh, neurodiverse talent to the organization? And then the other one, I, I'm saying both now because I want the wheels to be turning. Uh, someone is neurodiverse. And, and how and what do they disclose at one point, not knowing how a hiring manager is going to respond to it. So let's start from the organizational perspective. What can organizations do to ensure that they're attracting um, neurodiverse talent um, to express interest in joining the organization in the first place? One of the things I think is important is to make sure 
good as an organization that that is one of the um uh one of the things that is put out and not just put out from a disclaimer perspective or an advertisement perspective but that we continue to connect with mm -hmm the broader neurodivergent community. And that could be everything inclusive of, but not limited to connecting with different um, social media groups where uh, you find neurodivergent people that would uh, really connect from a social perspective. It's working with non-for-profits, it's working with providers. And I think outside of just making the claim that you're interested in neurodivergent talent is having the organization, and this is where the work comes in, embodying what that looks like because hiring neurodivergent talent is one piece, but expecting that a person that identifies as neurodivergent to come into an organization and to assimilate to what's already there is where there's a lot of opportunity. We are hiring individuals because of their uniqueness. However, we're not expecting that those um, sometimes excuse or it's called spiky pieces or spiky profiles are shaved away in order to assimilate to that current environment. So I think, again, it's putting it out there, but also making sure that the organization is readied for that neurodivergent talent, for that uniqueness and not assimilation. Yeah, that's uh, really great. And I think it, it's a challenge to organizations. Like words on a page or words on a website don't mean much if you're not following through and, and making those broader community connections and setting up the right kind of infrastructure to, to make this possible. And Brian, I would say just one thing to that point, right? Um, mm -hmm. in, in our work, we continue to realize that this is not a one and done. It's not a one-time conversation. It's continuous work and it's continuing to make sure that there's connection with the community as a whole, understanding mm -hmm. that a community is going through evolution on top of evolution because what was acceptable three years ago, three months ago, sometimes is not always what's accepted now. And to make sure that you are ready for the work and committed to the work are key pieces. Thank you for that. So let's flip to the other part, other question that I do think is almost like the other side of the coin to some extent. So um, neurodivergent talent applying for an organization and opening within an organization, what, when, how do I sort of share? You know, even asking the question, I'm not even quite sure exactly how to frame it because it's it's delicate on many um, many lenses. But any any sort of advice um, that you can give to prospective employees uh, as they're approaching organizations? I always tell candidates that it is a personal decision that you make. You decide when you are going to disclose whether or not that is something that you decide to do. Um, the disclosure is one component. I think what supports are available for you is a different type of discussion and a different spin because disclosure is not always what's required where or even necessary in as much as the organization that you are looking to connect and to align with should have things in place that helps you to bring your best self to whether it be that interview or to that organization. So disclosure, again, in my opinion, is less of the discussion and topic in as much as it is, hey, what do you need in order to be successful here um, within this experience, interview, onboarding, or within the work environment as a whole? And it may never get to a point where I want to disclose in as much as I have the supports necessary in 
order for me to be effective in the role in which you're hiring me to perform. And thank you for shedding light on the reality that an interview is a two-way street. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, organization is assessing a candidate and a candidate should be doing their due diligence uh, just as much on the organization. Chloe, Patrick, um, any comments on either one of those uh, two questions? Yeah, I would just chime in around it, it's so much about the employer having the open door right having the culture that will enable that employee to feel comfortable whether they're neurodiverse or whatever they are right it's like yeah how do you and and you back to your point on this two-way street on the interview like you can do research on who are inclusive companies or that are known for uh, embracing diversity and being inclusive and those are companies you probably want to seek out for, you know, if I was to recommend, you know, to individuals um, in terms of where to go. And oftentimes when I have conversations with, uh, and we'll probably get into this later, like small, medium-sized businesses, you know, just around the area, like how do I get involved? There's just so much education that has to occur to get awareness and understanding and then their own personal, the, the companies need to evaluate kind of where they are on this cultural assessment, if you will, of mm -hmm. being able to appreciate bringing someone in and, and and being part of the team. So, you know, I think it's it's much about, again, the other side, the employer and, and having that be a uh, careful, uh, or having that be a, a comfortable discussion on, on the other side. So. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that this was a, a very good question pairing on your part, uh, Brian. It, it's, like Patrick says, it's not just about whether the individual is willing to disclose and when, but for example, do they even have the opportunity to disclose? Um, are we using AI-based screening that will never give them the opportunity to have a conversation about what their needs in employment are? Um, are we even you know, are we getting to the point where the culture has a role? Um, th these are the questions I think that as we as we move forward in organizations, we really need to be aware of what kind of changes we're making and what the impacts of those changes are. So somebody I saw in the chat just said, I disclose in my CV. That's, you know, that's, that's great. Um, if the organization mm -hmm. is saying that they're they're inclusive and there's evidence that that culture is there. But if the if the resume that goes along with that CV doesn't have, um, you know, whatever it is that the, the prototypical person in the role needs to get to the point where somebody looks at the CV, then that's an issue and that's not going to matter. That's not neuroinclusive. So we need to think about how people are presenting and what we're expecting. Um, and making sure that those two pieces align between the organization and the individual. Thank you for commenting. The, the alignment piece is so critical. You also talked about um, different screening uh, mechanisms and organizations are, are always looking for new and creative ways to, to screen talent so that I can do it quickly and, and hopefully be able to uh, screen in the best of, of what I have. But uh, we know that it's not a perfect science and, and you know sometimes a company misses out on, on some great talent for a myriad of, of reasons and vice versa. Sometimes a talent may miss out on organization that's doing some amazing things, but maybe isn't actually vocalizing or, or, or sharing them in a way that people are picking up on it. I'm going to 
take us now to to the role of leader. Um, what role, and, and I'll get you to comment first, Patrick, on the role that a leader can play in empowering sort of neurodiverse talent within their organization. And I'm actually going to have a very broad definition of, mm-hmm. of leader. So there's leaders in terms of formal people leadership, but many people can play leadership roles within organizations. Sure, Brian. Look, I mentioned this earlier, but leaders first and foremost, can set the culture, right? And live the culture in terms of supporting neurodiverse hiring and uh, support systems and mechanisms for uh, success at the end of the day. Uh, That involves getting educated, as I mentioned before, and getting teams educated, how this works and what, you know, what are the myths that need to be busted or fears or the legal team can help support this HR team, like supporting a manager is important to say, Hey, look, what if this happens or that happens to know that legal or HR has your back? Like, yeah, we, we get this and and this is how, how we're going to proceed. If there's, you know, circumstances that, that might come up that are different than what may have been seen in the past. The other thing is thought about this a lot. It may require some sort of rethinking of what success traits uh, look like in an organization, right? So a lot of companies value things like polish, right? Or smooth communication, easy conversationalists, right? Like um, maybe meeting norms where everyone kind of sits a certain way and acts a certain way. And these aren't necessarily published, but they're you know, there are these unwritten kind of traits and norms that have to be reconsidered around what do we really need here in terms of ideas and outcomes and individuals that are going to help us advance the game in, in terms of our, our goals and our missions. It doesn't mean that you move away from your values around trust and, re, you know, relationship or ethics and, and and those sorts of things at all. It's more about do you have to reconsider or rethink you know, some of the more behavioral things that are, that that have become part of the organization. And then the other thing I just say is managers need to embrace, and I see some comments and so forth too, around how to support with, whether it's uh, job coaching support, which is what the Arc of the Capital does a lot for companies to, with their hires is to provide these job coaching resources that can help customize how they can be more successful and supporting budgets for uh, technology assistance where it might make sense. But a lot of this technology, frankly, is available today. Like if you look at the Microsoft suite of products that are out there that can help with all sorts of things with reading and writing and listening and um, messaging. And then you look at the power of these large language models like ChatGPT. Like this is so beneficial for those that, you know, really struggle with clear, clean communication of their ideas. And to be able to leverage that technology, the AI technology to then uh, help you with an email or help you with, you know, how to convey messages to, to team members, like being supportive of this, say, look, use this technology, leverage it, you know, note-taking technology like Glean is a a super powerful tool to be able to get in a meeting and record that meeting and take notes and understand, you know, what, you know, what so someone said or what actions need to be taken. Frankly, it helps everyone, right? And this is another theme that I've heard even from our chief uh, uh, information officer at Dell. It's like all these things you talk about, like everyone can benefit from and all these things that managers can do it's frankly what a, a good manager should be doing in the first place. So um, these things aren't like necessarily new and unique. 
it's it's more like bringing us back to what is a good leader what is a you know how do you manage your teams well to be successful great yeah great perspective right is is uh some of it's just like regrounding in in some 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 common sense and and common practices and then recognizing opportunities to grow and stretch and learn as well uh, I'm going to go to you next, Chloe, and then I'm going to come to you, uh, Jamel. Um, so, Chloe, you've obviously been researching a lot of organizations through the fantastic work that you've been um, working uh, so tirelessly on. Uh, there's some questions around sort of best practices and and maybe even leading practices. And you want to comment a little bit about, you know, what you've seen in, in organizations, you know, as it relates to... Um, you know, setting sort of that culture, you know, supporting leaders that are really kind of creating the right conditions um, for, uh, for, for, for what we've been talking about for the last sort of 30 minutes. What, what have you seen out there? The framing that I usually like to, to use is the individual meets organizations through all these tiny day-to-day interactions, right? Um, so as, as leaders, what we need to be thinking about is how do we get over um, some of the things that are inherent or just kind of things that we take for granted that are causing barriers for other people. So uh, one of the things that seems to be really necessary is to get over the idea of archetypes or prototypes that we associate with different roles in our organizations. And that's a bit different if you think about it from the stereotypes that we assign to different social groups. They're both important to be aware of and think about. But the first is really about the kind of person that we imagine for a given role. And the other one is about generalizations that we make about social groups. So when we think about the first one, it's really important in neurodiversity inclusion to be open about how different people can add value in unexpected ways and to be open to changing what we think a job is so that we really get at the core of what we need in that role instead of things that we take for granted that have just become part of what we imagine that person will look like. And one way, of course, that that happens is through trainings. Um, in our research, we've we've noticed that neurodiversity training makes better better people managers in general, and it really helps people to be intentional about managing specific people in specific situations rather than categorically. And that's something I think that is really the main part, the main spirit of what neurodiversity inclusion is about is being more about specifics and individuals and less about kind of categorical thinking and generalizations. Jamal, um, erasing the lines right so the, so much of what we've hit on and and all three of you have, have done this right is yes we want to be sort of individualistic where it makes sense and and recognize that all things are not 
uh, you know, sort of the same in a one size fits all solution doesn't work. Sort of this notion of, um, you know, programming that's going to support building a more inclusive work environment uh, and, and sort of focusing down on neurodivergent talent may actually benefit the broader organization. And, and you know, yeah, so good practices are good practices are good practices and same thing with good leaders and good people. Uh, so let's talk about, you know, sort of erasing the lines and, and sort of you know, around neurodiversity and neurodivergent sort of sort of programming that organizations have. And, and what do you mean by that? And, and uh, or what can organizations and leaders take away from that? So one, love the question, Brian, and I just want to piggyback off of what Chloe said. And, 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 and Patrick, uh, again, when we look at better practices for um, in entire organizations, many times that those better practices are birthed out of what we specifically done for uh, individuals that identify as neurodivergent, partly because it allows us to be that much clearer and takes away a lot of the ambiguity that's often associated with job descriptions and roles and organizations as a whole. The embodiment of what those supports look like at the manager level as well as even at the peer level are very important because as important is the manager to support a team member that's neurodivergent, I would say as equally is that person that will act as a buddy and or as a peer because oftentimes the culture change actually occurs in the day-to-day -day of those individuals working together as opposed to it often, or I should say coming from a top level directive of this is what you must do. And as much as it is, this is how we are embodying this relationship that we are on or that we are helping to design and cultivate. When you start talking about the blurring or the moving of lines, Brian, what immediately comes to me comes to mind for me is something that we are yet doing within EY and other organizations are really taking a page out of the book, wherein years ago we wanted to make sure that the door was open for individuals that are neurodivergent to come into a organization where there was a level of psychological safety. They feel as though they can bring their best self to that organization. But now how do we take some of the guardrails off of what we've done to not just blur the lines, but erase the lines such that now this becomes a part of the culture. It means really being able to have those individuals work with different teams across, whether it be service lines and or departments as appropriate, as well as providing those different teams with some knowledge transfer so that they will understand how to best work with any individual, right? So again, going back to our earlier comment that I made, this is less about a person coming out or disclosing their condition in as much as this is what works best for this team member? How do we make sure that information is being shared more proactively? How do we ensure that there are tools that are available for everyone and that access to those tools become less of a bit of a chore, quite honestly, because some organizations have tools, but there are so many checklists and requirements in order to get the tool that I need to be successful that it sometimes is daunting and maybe a person decides I don't want to go down that path or I, I choose not to um, have to communicate so much information in order for me to get a tool that is going to assist not just with my day-to-day, 
but ultimately it's going to make me more effective and more proficient and efficient so the organization benefits. And that's where we move from what many of our organizations started around neurodiversity to neuroinclusion to ultimately being able to drive workplaces that are inclusively designed. That means tools that are available for everyone and everyone has access to those tools without me having to um, justify why I need read-write as a tool to make me successful. Me not having to justify why I work better with three monitors versus the one monitor that my colleague has. This is less about what that person has in as much as it's about how do we make these tools available for anyone within the organization in order for them to be successful. Because the more successful the individual is, oftentimes the more successful teams are, which ultimately benefits the organizations that you're aligned to. Fantastic way of bringing it together, right? Win for the organization, win for the team, win for the individual. I, I really appreciate you talking about, you know, don't need to justify if, if it if it's going to allow someone to to succeed and and to ideally thrive, then let's look at ways to do that and and challenging organizations to get out in front of it so we can respond to a request. But what can you do to create the conditions and to create that environment where everyone's able to to bring their best? And I appreciate your comment around psychological safety, and, and I appreciate you bringing that into our conversation. Patrick, organizations are at different points along the journey. So, so we, we've heard some examples of organizations that have made significant strides and in investments. I am using the word journey deliberately because it's not a, okay, tick, I'm done and I move on. It, it, this is an ongoing journey and, and organizations need to continue to, to push themselves and, and, and to move forward. What about organizations that are not on the journey yet or at the very early stages of the journey? And I'm thinking even more so smaller organizations that might not have large infrastructure or or a ton of resources like how do i get started or or yeah, yeah let's leave it there how do i get started yeah I th- and i think you you set that up well brian because you know big companies like ey and dell and microsoft like these leaders like they have a lot of money <laughs> and they can support uh infrastructure they can support a role you know like what Jamel plays, or we have Danielle at, at Dell and like these program managers. And, you know, that requires budget and so forth. And a lot of companies would look at that and say, well, we don't have money for that. And, you know, what, why would we, or how could we even do something like that? And immediately think that's not for us. And then the other aspect is just the training and awareness. Like in a lot of small and medium businesses, like the conversations I have, start with the culture and many times it could be an owner or uh, someone on the team that uh, somehow is closely involved with neurodiversity personally impacted and that takes that kind of understanding or appreciation uh, to have that door open so a lot of this comes uh, happens in the community the communities need to do more uh, to build awareness and uh, eliminate a lot of the fears around what it uh, what it means to to hire someone and where all those opportunities are. There are a lot of like I'm involved with the Arc of the Capital that helps companies through education uh, and help support an internship, right? You don't have to just make your whole team, you know, neurodivergent, but like 
why don't we have interns and why don't we learn with this? And if you're going to help us coach uh, the individual to be successful, um, you just sort of take away those roadblocks or fears and and create it that way. But I look, it's our biggest opportunity in this space because the biggest companies in the world, you know, if you add up all the hires of these companies that we've mentioned, maybe they've hired a couple thousand people. We're talking like we need millions of jobs, right? A across the country and then think about the world, right? So uh, a lot of this comes back to culture, awareness, training, understanding, and uh, enabling it to be uh, a, a good business thing to do at the end of the day. So. And I also appreciate your comment around, you know, so the organization's role in this, but but part of a broader community and ecosystem as well. And, and what can we do to support organizations as they make efforts to move these pieces of important work further? Um, and, and you're right, is is if you look in, in the makeup of, of Canada, you know, how many organizations fall into small and medium uh, as, as their yeah. size? And we need these organizations. Um, so, and, but again, way. I would say there are a number of, you know, these, whether it's community nonprofit organizations or small businesses, like there's a whole community of resources that want to help. Right. Okay. And it's it's how do you match these employers that are interested to to get the help, get the training, get the understanding identify that you know where the individuals are that you know can can benefit from better roles and then you know those that matching that happens in the community is is what needs to happen it's challenging if if the the the, the need is there and the support is there but <laughs> the two don't know about each other we right. missed the opportunity exactly uh, Chloe, I, uh, I think I'd be hard pressed to go an hour without talking about um, remote work as part of the conversation. Um, you know, any anything that you've come across uh, in your research, other panelists, you can feel free to chime in as, as well. But I want to start with you, Chloe, around, um, you know, supporting um, workers who are not necessarily physically in the same room all the time with um with other team members if, if remote work is is either a big part or a small part of uh, someone's role in an organization. Neuro-minorities have been advocating for remote work capabilities and generally being allowed to work from home for years and years and years. And organizations always came up with a lot of good excuses for why that wasn't feasible. And then COVID happened and everybody was having to work remotely. So um, it, it's really interesting that now we as organizations are enabling more people to, to do so. I think in, in neurodiversity, that, that helps a lot. Um, it helps in terms of making workplaces more inclusive. And the way that organizations seem to be managing that has a lot to do with technology and media mediating what needs to be done in terms of social interaction and instruction management and oversight through technology. So one of our one of our categories of data that we we like to look at and talk about is how this technology is playing a role in that in that relationship. And it's not something I was necessarily going to talk in depth on today, but um, it, it does play a, ma a major role. And 
we see some really interesting technology in social enterprise in particular, where there's a lot of innovation going on in terms of employment design. Um, and they, they like to use technology for different aspects of employment, uh, and especially in remote situations. So checking in with people and seeing how their, how their mood is, how, how they're feeling in, in terms of their work and their orientation towards their work. Um, but also in terms of communication mechanisms and things that will help them communicate more effectively, not just with their managers, but with their teammates. So we're seeing a lot of different applications and a lot of different ways of integrating technology to facilitate very productive uh, remote work. Uh, so it's it's just very timely that we had a mass move to remote and now kind of back. Uh, but the, it does seem to be sticking a little bit more in neurodiversity friendly organizations. Interesting. And I appreciate your comment on, on, yeah, it was actually something that was happening pre, uh, you know, 2020, you know, 2020 gave the opportunity and, and now as the pendulum's trying to find where it's going to ultimately settle, um, you know, it's something to look for in, in organizations who, um, who are sort of adopting some of these leading practices and, and creating the, the most favorable conditions. Um, it, it, quick, any sort of additional comments, Jamel or Patrick, around sort of um, what organizations can do to support um, remote work in the context of, of, of inclusion here? I, I think Chloe, you know, hit on some really uh, important pieces there. And one of the things I would continue to say is that we as organizations need to continue to look at the specifics around the expectations of the rules. I think that there has um, really created um, this, this ability for organizations to challenge them themselves in light of COVID and things now being you know COVID light. There is absolutely positively benefit in bringing teams together because that creates a level of synergy and a, a level of productivity. But also, I think that the uh, ability to work remotely, as well as again to be able to check in. Um, with the team members, as well as to get really creative as to how can we even team within this virtual environment has challenged many leaders to think outside the box, if that's what you're comfortable with, or think inside the box, if that's what you're comfortable with, in order to bring those teams together. But um, outside of that, Patrick, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add there. Yeah, it just reminded me of a funny story back. This is, you know, pre when people were working from home, where we had one of our talented individuals was invited to their team's ice cream social, and they went back to their manager and said, you know, I love ice cream, but I hate social, so I don't know what to do here. <laughs> but I think it really comes back to flex, you know, the, having flexibility in, in the workplace to to be able to accommodate, you know, what's going to allow people to do their best work. So, and working with them, the individual. Yeah, yeah it, it, back that two-way street, the conversation, the openness. Uh, so we're getting close to the top of the hour, um, and I'm going to enter the rapid fire round here of of questions. Um, I'm going to I'm going to ask you, you know, final comments on on sort of a takeaway for what a leader can do within an organization. Maybe one recommendation. But before that, there was a great question earlier around, um, you know, what can I be looking for in an organization to see um, what they're doing 
um, you know, maybe what practices they've adopted, you know, is this potentially an organization where I'm going to feel the support that I would hope to feel, um, whether I disclose or not, but, you know, so I'm in the research phase, let's say, of of, of my job search. Where, what do I look for? Where do I start? So one of the things I'll say quickly here is look for organizations that are embodying what they are saying. Right. And when I when I when I say that, I specifically mean if an organization is saying that they are um, in, in neuroinclusive, look at what the examples of that neuroinclusivity looks like. Do they have individuals that are neurodivergent in leadership? Do they have individuals that are neurodivergent talking about their experiences? Are there examples where neurodivergent and neurotypical employees are working together in order to create either whether it be best practices or work on um, different external type events, if applicable, because we need, well, I would suspect, I should say, we need to see examples of what that looks like. And that person would then be able to make a decision as to if the organization is embodying things that are interesting to them that also meet some of their specific needs. Because for some organizations, some individuals have had really dynamic experiences and for others, not so much, even if it is an organization that claim to be neuroinclusive. Yeah, I would just add um, one of the things that we've noticed popping up a lot more are the EIGs and the ERGs that are neurodiversity related. And often those are somehow documented uh, in terms of, you know, either social media or press releases or other ways that you can track down whether organizations have these internal employee groups. And if there are ones that appeal to neurodiversity, um, then I would suggest just reaching out to some of the people in there. And it's it's a great indication that the organization has people and that they're supporting each other. But a lot of times, I think, probably depending on which department and who you're working with, of course, the experience can vary. But at least you can get a temperature uh, check if you reach out to somebody who's actually there experiencing it. Yeah, I have I to jump that. in there. I'm sorry, Brian, and say EY does have a large global um, neurodivergent <laughs> ERG that is actually ran by our neurodivergent team. Topics and all actually come in led, run by that team. So I had to do that plug. Sorry. No, you're you're able to. If we've got it, there's some practices that others can follow. This is great. Uh, so we're getting really close. So I, I'm going to give each person 20 seconds, literally. Um, on um i'm a leader within an organization and i want to make a difference you know what's one thing i can do what, what would you suggest that i do i would say act um there's something that's called the coi and it's a cost of inactivity there's a cost to your organization if you don't choose to do something oftentimes we don't move because we don't want to do the wrong thing fail learn yeah. from it and then learn and grow fail learn grow perfect i would say be intentional you know be reflexive and focused on what you're trying to accomplish and the rest of it i think is quite simple yeah i i don't have much to add i think you guys said it well act be intentional and you know again it's it's just being the the culture right so living the culture uh, it sounds like inertia is going to be worse than not acting and learning and trying and and being intentional about uh, my ongoing development so i i want to thank um jamel patrick 
Chloe. Fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you sharing your wealth of experience and knowledge on such an important um, topic. Thank you for tuning in to Leadership in Practice. We'd like to thank our guests, Jamel Mitchell, Patrick Poljan, and Chloe Cameron. Leadership in Practice is produced by Melissa Welsh, Joanna Shepard, and me, Sean Acklin Grant. Editing and audio mix by Carol Eugene Park. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. You can also find more information by visiting ivyacademy.com or follow us on social media at Ivy Academy for more content, upcoming events, and programs. We hope you'll join us again soon.